right, all right, all right. Good evening, Salt Company. How we doing? Oh, geez, that was, how was Thanksgiving break? Yeah? Okay. You guys, I ate way too much this year. I don't know. Anybody feel like they ate too much this year? Oh, my goodness. My mom, she put cornbread in the stuffing. And that, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That changed literally everything. I just kept eating. You know where you're like to the point of full and then you just go way past that line? That is all Thanksgiving break. Hey, zip it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that I've noticed is it is always a challenge, isn't it? Coming back from break and back to college, right? You felt that before? There is always this discontentment that happens in the life of the college student because they are moving back from home where it is super nice, super clean. Your mom does your laundry. The dishes are done. Everything's taken care of. And then you go back to the dorm. And you walk back, and the roommates are back. And they have their parties happening late at night. And the dishes are back. And the laundry's back. And everything that your mom did doesn't happen anymore. Anybody felt like that before? Ra OK, honest, honest, honest moment here. Raise your hand if you've ever felt discontent with where you live at college. Yeah. All right. OK, thank you for being honest. We, we've all been there. Right, from those smelly roommates to the difficult living circumstances. Let me, let me give you a little bit of comfort right now as you come back from break. Where I lived in college <laughs> was way worse than anything you've ever seen or known. My junior year, my friends and I were late to getting a house. You don't want to be late when you get a house. It was like the week before the first class. And we just put it off. We're like, who cares? We'll figure it out. And uh, we put it off, and we were scrambling. What is, where are we going to live? Well, there was this one house. It was literally the only house left. And it was more of a shack. And you knew that, you knew that there was room to be concerned when the pictures didn't even look good online. You're like, if they can't fool me with a picture, this is going to be bad. And uh, my roommates and I, we, we told ourselves, you know what, well, let's be optimistic. Like, we're college guys. This is a college experience. We're going to do it. We're tough. Well, that optimism all went away the day we saw the house. I remember the landlord swinging the door open. <laughs> Hadn't been open in 50 years. <laughs> and I walk in, and before your eyes can take in anything visually... There's this smell, just hits you like a truck. And the only scent I could give it was death. <laughs> it was like a, a rat died or a human died and maybe was in the walls, I don't know. But as you begin to get over the smell, you started taking in this house visually and the first color that met your eyes was a really bad color, bright green. <laughs> and that was the carpet. And as you looked closer at the carpet, there are these brown blotches of who knows what. And I'm just going, oh my gosh, this is where we're living. And you look around, and there's mold in the ceilings. Just like the ceilings. You know when 
like the ceiling hangs down, like something's about to fall out of it. That's what they looked like everywhere. And not only that, you see the curtains, they look like they were made 800 years ago. The trash was full, like they just left, they didn't even take the trash out. Um, it was terrible. And the house got way worse as we lived in it. We found out midway through the year that the house had an ant infestation. I remember one morning, I was pouring a bowl of frosted mini-wheats. And uh, instead of being met by those beautiful white treasures, I was met by a herd of red ants came into my bowl. I'm like, ah! And uh, yeah, we had ants running through our house. The house uh, toilet didn't work. The seat was broken. So one of the bolts was missing, so it would swing out like this. So if you sat down and you didn't sit on it perfectly, it would go, and you would go, and just go straight into the water. And uh, eventually we, we lost the other bolt. And so soon the toilet seat was literally just sitting on the ground. And you would walk in and you'd grab the seat, just feeling like a failure. And you would grab it and you'd have to use both hands as you sat down. And it was literally like a balancing act because you did not want to fall into the toilet. So that was awful. Um, we had a hole in one of our windows, which isn't a problem here, but in Iowa, it gets to like negative 20 degrees below zero. I remember waking up one night so cold, I genuinely wondered, am I going to see the dawn of the morning? <laughs> it was so frigid. And as I lived in this house, I grew to resent it. Like, this is, this is horrible. What are we doing? This place sucks. I was scared. I'm like, I don't want to go to my house. I don't want to sleep tonight. What if the ants get me? What if a rat runs across me? Like, what if I don't survive? And not only was there fear, but there was embarrassment. We'd have people over. I'm like, oh my gosh, don't use that bathroom. Like, go outside. It'll be better. <laughs> It'll be better for you. And even having Michelle over, I'm like, babe, do not use that bathroom. Like, please do not. Like, it was just embarrassing to live there. Well, I remember there was a day that all of that changed. And it was the day that Michelle, my new fiance, and I signed the lease on our first ever apartment. And when we signed that lease, my attitude about the house completely changed. Because I realized in that moment, soon I'm not gonna be living in this crap hole any longer. Soon I'm gonna be living in a clean apartment with clean bathrooms and a toilet seat that works, and most importantly, with my wife. And so my future hope changed the way that I saw my present circumstances. Because I knew soon I'm not gonna be here. Soon I'm gonna be there with my bride. Tonight, Paul writes to a church that was dealing with perhaps the most difficult circumstance it had ever faced. The Thessalonians were experiencing the most difficult situation, the most difficult present circumstance they'd encountered. And it wasn't a living location. It, it wasn't hostility. It wasn't money problems. It wasn't even persecution, believe it or not. What was it? It was death, death, and particularly the death of their loved ones. See, they, they didn't know what to make of this. 
There was a deep grieving that was going on in their soul as people were dying in their church, people that they loved, and they didn't know what to make of death. It severely troubled them. Some of you in this room, you know the pain that comes with death. Some of you here have lost a loved one. Some of you here have lost someone really close to you. And if you haven't lost someone in this room, with the stage of life you're in, just keep living. Because eventually, death, which seems so incomprehensible, so impossible, will become very real to you. Just keep living. And not only will it become real for you as you experience loss, this is where it gets really grave, it's eventually coming for you. One scholar says, history is a conveyor belt of carnage. It's just all marked by death. And for some of you in this room, that topic of death, even as I say those words, it's terrifying to you. It's terrifying. We don't like to talk about death, do we? We never like to talk. You don't hear that one being talked about at the lunch table, like, oh yeah, death. Nobody's talking about that. Because it's troubling, and there's worry associated it, and some of you may have real concern over the topic of death. Well, tonight, Paul is going to write to these troubled Thessalonians who are dealing with death and he's going to give them words of life. And what he's going to tell them and what he's going to tell us is that your hope in Christ changes how you think of the end of your life and how you live to the end of your life. And this is the big idea for tonight if you're taking notes. Hope in Christ changes how we think of the end and how we live to the end. So let's look at the words that Paul has for this church. How did he tell them to deal with death? If you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Here's what Paul says to them. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest. Who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I love this. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what does Paul say about the topic of death? Notice first what he doesn't say. Verse 13, what does he not say? He doesn't say to them, stop grieving. Get it together. Don't cry over death. 
It's not painful. Keep moving. No, he, he says, he says, he doesn't want them to grieve like the rest who have no hope. So there are some who experience death and it's hopeless. There are people like that who they experience and encounter death and it's hopeless. It's final. It's the end. But Paul says that's not the case for you. Yes, there is grieving associated with death, but for those who are in Christ, it's completely different. A couple months ago, I got terrible news concerning one of my best friends, my sweet grandma Helen, or as we called her, Grandma Pumpkin. I don't know who called her that, but it just stuck. Hey, Pumpkin, Pumpkin. Um, if you knew her, if you had the chance of meeting her, she was unlike anybody you'd ever met. Truly. She had this thick East Coast accent. Babe. Hey, hon. How you doing, sweetie? She had this like East Coast accent, this thunderous laugh. Ha, 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 ha. She was a daredevil. I remember her doing a front flip with us on the trampoline, dislocating, I think, her hip or one of her legs. It was bad. She was this daredevil. In fact, I, I brought a video for you to see just to catch a glimpse of what she was like. We'll see if that comes up. <laughs> I guess we can all, we can all die all night with one if we have to. <laughs> so that was, yeah, yeah, that was Helen. I love that they're like, we might need to dial 911. That was actually me, the kid who pushed her down the deal. But, um, there was no one more full of life than Helen. And uh, we had this really sweet friendship, her and I, this really like unordinary friendship between a grandmother and her grandson. And uh, I think it's because she had all sons that she just connected closely with me. And she wasn't afraid to say that I was her favorite grandchild. Like she would straight up say, she'd be like, at a, a full table with like all our like cousins, she'd be like, you know, Josiah is my favorite grandson. And it's just like, all right, well, that's pretty clear. We don't have to argue about it anymore. Um, but my grandma had a lifelong battle with cancer. And we were always amazed at her resiliency as she walked through this trial. She was extremely, extremely tough. Well, a few months ago, just a couple months ago, she went to the hospital because she was having a really hard time breathing. And we didn't know, like... We weren't super worried at first because she'd had a hard time breathing over the whole course of her life. Um, but she went in to, to get this checkup, having a hard time breathing. And uh, as the doctors did a scan of her body, what they told her is that, Helen, you have stage five terminal cancer. Cancer that you had... Uh, it battled earlier in your life. It has returned, and uh, it's spread all over your body. It is returned to your one good working lung. It is spread through your bones, into your bones, and the worst part is it had even spread to her brain. And what the doctors told her and what they told us is, you only have a few weeks to live. And this is shocking news for her to hear and then also for us to hear because she came into the hospital 
just having a hard time breathing, and now she's being told that her whole life is reduced down to a couple days. And uh, we called all of our extended family, everyone that had meant something to her in this life, and told them, hey, you need to get to Gainesville. And so they immediately paused work, canceled everything, and flew here to Gainesville for these last few precious days with her. Well, it was a Friday that we all went in as a family to Shan's hospital to see her. And the tension, I remember that day, was extremely high because my dad and his brothers, who were her three sons, had just gone in earlier before all of the family went in and made that really hard decision that we were going to choose palliative care over curative, which basically means, hey, we're not going to try and battle this thing. We don't think you could withstand the treatment. We're going to get you as comfortable as we possibly can and um, stop fighting. Well, there was a lobby outside of her room, and the doctors were incredibly cautious with us seeing her because this is in the middle of COVID, and so they were only letting three people go in at a time, just groups of three. And uh, I remember I was in my group, and I was seeing the groups go ahead of me, and I was just extremely anxious just sitting there, just, you know, because this is one of the closest people in my life. And I hadn't seen her in a few weeks, and the last time I did see her, she was really healthy, and so I just didn't know what to expect. I hadn't experienced something like this before. Well, I finally got to go to her room, and I just saw her there, laying on the bed, just hooked up to all the machines. And... She was just a shell of the spunky person that we knew. Just looked so incredibly weak. But I remember when she saw me, her eyes lit up for a moment. And she just said in her voice, Joe, I, uh, and I burst into tears, obviously. And I had to look away because I was crying so hard. But when I gathered myself and I could start to just talk to her, I grabbed her hand and I just kept holding it and I told her how much I loved her and tried to have a conversation with her and she just kept telling me, I'm in God's hands. She was almost assuring me, I'm in God's hands. And uh, then I... I just put my arms around her. And I got her as close as I could to myself. And I just prayed for her. And told her how much I loved her. And the last word she told me in that moment was, I love you so much. And she kissed me on the forehead. Well, the next evening, I got a call from my mom. And she had said, uh, hey, you need to get to the hospital now. And so we, all of our family, we didn't know when this day was going to come, but we, we all rushed back to the hospital, getting this urgent ca call from the hospital. 
And because she was being pulled off of the blood infusions that were keeping her alive, she had gone into a state of shock. And uh, this is, she was conscious laying there with her eyes open. It was pretty eerie just seeing her eyes open, but she couldn't say anything back to us. She's just, I don't know if she didn't have the strength or if she was just not conscious, but um, we all gathered around her bed, all gathered around this woman who we love so much, and uh, we're all in the, crammed in this small room at the top of Shan's Hospital on the eighth floor. And uh, one of the things that my grandma loved was worship. And if you ever saw her here at Salt Church, you knew that she loved worship. She was always front row, like two hands raised, like cedar trees just up here for the world to see. And she just loved worship. And so we decided, let's give her one last worship service. And uh, we sang loudly. We sang all of our favorite songs. And I'm sure the nurses were wondering, like, what in the world is going on in there? And uh, you could just begin to tell that she was slowly fading, just little by little, little. And I remember I was holding her hand, and it just kept getting colder and colder. And uh, the last thing we decided to do is to go around the room and have this last final moment with her where we could go up right next to her and tell her something in her ear. While she's conscious, I don't know if she heard what we said, but we had this, these last words to give her. And uh, I went up to this woman that I loved so much, and I told her, and I'll never forget, I said, your pain is about to end. Life is about to begin, and soon you'll meet him. Soon you'll meet him, and I'll see you again very soon. And we left the room, and uh, my mom and Claire, they stayed a little bit longer than the rest of us because they thought, we, for some reason, we're being told we need to stay a little bit longer. We're going to sing a few more songs over her. So all of us had left, and my mom and Claire just stayed in the room and kept singing over her. And they sang those songs at the top of their lungs. And right as they left the room, moments after, she died. And it was like she had stayed for those final songs. And when the worship had ended, she left for a much greater worship service. And I'm telling you, there, there has certainly been grieving over my grandma, Helen. And I don't know if I've ever cried more tears. This is one of my best friends. But amidst the sadness of Helen's death, there has been rejoicing. The tears have been accompanied by joy. And here's why, because she had an incredible hope. A few days after she died, we were going through her stuff, and we found this journal right here. And uh, it was so cool because Claire, in her last year of life, taught her really how to read the Bible. She, her last year of life was so precious to us because it was definitely the most spiritually active year of her whole life. 
Claire taught her the little SOAP acronym, Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer, and she just sent that thing full send in her journals through the course of the whole year. And uh, she was outpacing all of us in the Bible reading plan, and each morning you would go out there and you would see her just sitting out on her deck with her coffee, and she was just studying the Scriptures just passionately. And it was so sweet that God gave us that last year and her that last year. Well, we found this journal... And uh, as I was, I found this the day after she died. The day after she died, I found this. And uh, I started going through it. And my, as I was going through it, I found a journal entry that was towards the end of her life. And it was called Preparing for Death. Preparing for Death. And immediately, my eyes were transfixed on this one entry, because I, I wondered, what was going through your head as you knew your end was coming near? What was going through your head? And uh, I won't read all this for you, but let me read you what she wrote for her prayer, her, her little P section, her prayer. She said, Dear God, Thank you for your son who paid with his life for my sins. Because of your precious gift of salvation, I have hope of eternal life. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. Her hope was directly attached the one who had paid for her sins, to her Savior, to her Jesus. And because of his death, when the doctors pronounced Helen Sabino dead, heaven declared her alive. They, when her eyes closed in death, they beheld the greatest sight, her sweet Savior, Jesus. What a moment that had to be, to behold Christ, to be done with the pain, and to see the one who's paid for your sins. Paul says, there's a reason that Christ's followers don't need to grieve death. Here's why you have hope if your hope is in Christ. Verse 14 since we believe that Jesus died and Jesus rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Some of you in this room, you fear death. It worries you. It troubles you. You've experienced it. You're haunted by it. Salt Company, I want you to know this and believe this to be true, that in Christ, as Helen wrote, death is not the end. In Christ, there is hope that goes beyond the grave. And how is there this assured hope that Christ followers have beyond death? It's because we believe that Jesus died. And Jesus rose again. Jesus pardoned all of the wrath that we deserved for our sins. And he took it upon himself.
Jesus, in that moment when he died on the cross, taking all the wrath that we deserved, the penalty for sin was paid and death was canceled. Not only did Christ die, however, three days later he did something that no one's done before. He was buried and walked out the other side. He resurrected from the dead. And this was the proof that Christ was indeed triumphant over death, and it was a declaration to all of hell that its greatest weapon had been defeated. One theologian said it this way, think of this glorious transaction like a bee sting. When a bee stings, it wounds what it's stinging, right? You get stung, ah! But after it stings, the bee itself dies. When death stung Jesus Christ, death sunk its sting into him, but then was defeated. When death sunk its sting into Christ, when he hung there on a cross, on a cross for our behalf, death was canceled, and now we don't need to fear death. Because he took the sting, and it was done away with forever in him. Now we can declare for peoples who, who have hope in Christ, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? Death can never sting again. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says it this way, for those of you who fear death, through Christ's death, he destroyed the one holding power over, the, over death, that is the devil. And he freed those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Salt Company, you don't need to fear death any longer because Christ has done away with it. Christ has done away with it on the cross. What comforting words to people who are experiencing it closely to them and comforting words to me as we experienced Helen's passing. I've noticed something about death. And there's something that I learned amidst Helen, my grandma Helen's death. There's a really profound thing that happens when people die, especially for the people who witness it. King Solomon, who is given infinite wisdom from God, said in Ecclesiastes 7.2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than rejoicing. Since death is the fate of all mankind and the living should take this to heart, now, why would he say something like that? We all love parties more than we love funerals, right? There's way more joy at a party than a funeral. But there's something about death and being close to it that opens the eyes of the living. Because when you see it happen, you begin to ponder your fate. You begin to go, that's, that's where I'm going someday. How am I living Death is like a defroster in your car. It helps you see life incredibly clearly for a moment. And Paul is going to close this passage by saying, now that you've experienced death, and I have your attention for a minute, Thessalonians, knowing your eyes are opened, I want to give you careful instructions on how you are to live to your end. To your end. Look what he says, 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm going to read 1 through 10. 
Here's his instructions to the living. About the times and the seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them, like labor pains come on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in the dark for this day to overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then we must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious. There it is again. Since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put on the armor of faith and love on our chests and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And again, he says, encourage each other with these things. Now, why is Paul all of a sudden talking about the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord, this moment where Christ is going to return victoriously, not humbly as a child, but victoriously as a king, clothed in, clothed in majesty and glory, and collect believers to himself and judge unbelievers. That's the day of the Lord that's coming. For some, that will be a glorious moment when they meet their Savior, and others, that'll be a moment of strickening fear. Why is Paul talking about the day of the Lord? It's because Paul believed this moment's going to come in your lifetime. Paul believed the day of the Lord, if you don't encounter Christ in death, you're surely going to meet him when he returns. And Paul thought, before I die, Christ is coming back. And he had every reason to, right? Because Jesus, in all of his teachings, said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. The Son of Man is coming back. The last words of Revelation, prepare yourselves. I am coming to you quickly. Paul believed Christ is coming back. And so Paul says, your life is going to end in one of two ways. Either you die or Christ comes back. And because, Thessalonians, you are in Christ and you know this hope is coming, I want you to live radically different from the rest of the world. I want you to live radically different than the rest of the world, transfixed and completely focused on eternity when Christ comes back. How does the world tell you to live? Verse 3, immediate gain. They're unaware of the Lord's coming. Ah, doesn't matter. Live for now. They don't think about the end of life. The world doesn't think about when life ends. They only think about the now. They only think about life on earth. Paul says, you, however, you're sons of the day. You're sons of Jesus. He has come and he has given you a new hope. You know, you have a hope beyond this life. And so what does he tell the Thessalonians? Be serious. Be serious, be focused, be self-controlled. Verse six and eight, don't close your eyes, be focused. Don't begin thinking like the rest of the world. Don't be deceived into getting comfortable here on earth. Don't be like my wife who falls asleep in every movie. Every single time, 
We watched the movie, and I'm trying to keep her awake. She's dozing off, dozing off the whole time. I'm like, Michelle, stay awake. Like Thanos, he's about to snap his fingers. It's all going to be gone. <laughs> She's like, and then we get to that moment where Thanos is about, and he snaps, and I look over, and I go, Michelle, is it? And she's <laughs> just out cold. Paul says, be serious. There's a moment coming. The end is coming. And why does he want them to be serious? It's because Paul had a really big future hope. Paul had an amazing hope that far surpassed this life. It was an eternal hope. Where does he say you're going to arrive after death or when Christ comes? Verse 9. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Salvation. Where we will live together with him. Let me close with this. See ya. No. <laughs> Paul saw eternity and life like this rope. Some of you have, oh, unplug all the power. Some of you, some of you have seen this illustration before. Fritz Francis Chan's, I'm stealing it. Some of you have seen this. Let's imagine for a moment that this rope goes on forever. Okay, it actually stops over there, but let's imagine it goes on forever. Now let's also imagine that this rope represents a timeline of your life. It represents a timeline of your life and it goes on forever. You will live forever and ever. See this part right here? This red part, this represents your time on earth. This. You get a few short years living here on earth, and then you spend eternity somewhere else. And what Paul says is so crazy, and what I find so crazy is that some of you in this room you're obsessed with this. You go, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a job here, and I'm going to save, 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 save all my life so that I can really enjoy this last little part right here. And Paul says, that's crazy. Because what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And some of you are so obsessed with this. It's all you can see. Am I going to get to have the experiences I want in this life? Am I going to get to travel? Am I going to get get to get to get? Am I going to get to be comfortable? Paul says, "You're missing it. What about this? What about this? Because here's the thing about this little red part, and here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that however you live in this life." And the decisions that you make in this life determine all of the next millions and millions and millions of years eternally. The decisions you make in this life. And what Paul is telling them, don't be focused on this when this is around the corner. Don't be focused on this when this is so close 
Paul says, I want you to live differently than the world. I want you to be laser focused. I want you to be prepared for what's coming. Which, it's hard to be prepared for what's coming down here on earth, isn't it? Because down here on earth, we see things unlike they actually are. Down here on earth, it's easy to get really sleepy. It's easy to doze off and get really comfortable here. And the reason that it's so difficult to see life clearly is because the world is preaching to you a message that is so counterintuitive to the message that Christ teaches. The world tells you, live for the moment. Live for the moment. Do whatever makes you happy in the moment. The world and culture tells you, oh, you have these four years in college. Spend them as, and enjoy them as much as you want to. You'll never get them again. Sleep with who you want to. Drink with who you want to. Do whatever you want. Immediate pleasure, immediate gain right now. Jesus says, the desires of the flesh is not of the Father, but of the world. The world tells you, build up a kingdom here. Accumulate as much treasure and as much wealth as you can possibly get here. Get the degree, get the highest paying job you possibly can. You're going to need it so that you can save, 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 save and get to this moment, which is the best moment of life where you become a kid again. It's called retirement. And you, what the world is trying to tell you is move down to Sarasota, get your beach house and collect seashells on the beach until you turn orange. That's what the world's trying to tell you. Build up a kingdom and get here. Jesus says, don't collect for yourself treasures on earth. Collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul says, I have this hope in Christ. I have this hope that exceeds my life. I have this hope of the life that is just around the corner. And I'm not going to be fooled. I'm I'm not going to be fooled like the rest of the world. I'm going to run the race chasing after the prize, which is all of this and this. I am going to run so that one day I can stand before the judge and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You only get one life. You only get one life, and I'm telling you, the end of your life is going to come quickly. Helen Sabino walked into a hospital and her life was reduced down to days in a moment. You will, your life will come to an end quickly, either by death or by Christ's return. We do not know if tomorrow is promised. Christ could return right now or now, or he could return at the end of this message or tomorrow. We don't know if tomorrow is promised. And when Jesus does return, I don't want to be standing before him with my shell collection. I want to stand before him empty-handed, saying, I gave it all away. I ran the race hard. I ran the race to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I ran the race forsaking all immediate pleasure so that I could one day receive the crown and be told, well done. I'm proud of you, Josiah. You did it. You made it. You didn't live for this. You lived for this. Before I moved in with Michelle, I told you I lived in a horrible house. Before I moved in with her, I got rid of all the crappy things I owned 
my nasty twin bed mattress, the nasty dresser, all of it was crap. I got rid of all of it because I knew where I'm going, these things aren't going to belong. Where I am going after this, these things won't even make sense there. Salt Company, what if we had a heavenly hope like that? What if we said, you know what? I'll finish my life at zero. I'll give all my finances away because you know what? I can't take those things with me. What if we said, I'll go on a church plant. You know what? I'm going to go. Though the world and though your degree and your job said, no, it would make way more sense to stay here and, and make money and advance your career, you said, no, I'm going to go do something for the kingdom of God. I'm going to go advance his kingdom. It doesn't make sense to the world, but it makes sense to the kingdom. What if we said, you know what, this summer or next summer, I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to go overseas. I know it's going to put a break and hold on my, on my years to graduation, but I'm going to go because people need to hear Jesus, and I want to be on a mission in my life that's fully after him. What if we had a heavenly hope? And I'll finish with this. Some of you tonight, you are here, and you're wondering, what's going on? You have come to college living for pleasure, living for the world. You don't have hope in Christ. Death actually terrifies you. And part of the reason you know you don't have hope is because you don't have a relationship with him, and you know it. Let me tell you this. Jesus loves you. Jesus adores you. And in a moment, he can forgive you of all your sins. He can look at you and wipe your slate clean because he stepped onto that cross and took all the wrath that you deserved away from you. In a moment, you can be forgiven and you can have hope that far exceeds this little life here on earth and that goes into eternity forever with Christ. Hope in Christ gives you extreme faith in this life. Hope in Christ changes the way you think about the end, and it changes how you live to the end. Oh, would that be words that describe Salt Company UF? Let me pray.